Okay, back to Jewish eschatology, which is eschatology. That's the introduction. We completed the introduction, so we still have what rest of today and next week to talk about eschatology of Israel. Let's get into some of the details. And I've broken it down somewhat chronologically. Let's take a look at Israel before the tribulation. What does the Bible tell us about Israel before the tribulation? Jewish eschatology. And our little timeline again, the kingdom, the exile, a restoration, Messiah, and another exile, you might say, or scattering, at least. Scattering is probably a better word. And the nation of Israel is was essentially scattered for nearly 2,000 years, which is unheard of in world history. No people have ever experienced such a scattering and destruction. The nation was utterly destroyed a second time. Nation utterly destroyed under the Babylonians, utterly destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and completed in one, what is it, 136, I think, when they were finally totally scattered. So they are in dispersion, or they have been in dispersion, awaiting the next major event of Jewish history, a period of tribulation, which has some purposes that we'll look at. But they are dispersed or scattered, so let's take a look at some scattering. And there's many passages, particularly in the prophets, that speak of their scattering. It's predicted early, not only in that, Deuteronomy, remember we looked at Deuteronomy 20, 28, and it spoke of exile, very specific, but let's read chapter 4, 425, uh, just start off there, but you can copy all the way to 31, read a couple of verses there. When you father children and children's children, and are old in the land, they corruptly by our damage and the of anything, and by doing what is evil in the Lord, your God, both in the anger. I call him to witness again. You will soon utterly perish us. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Wow. Pretty strong language. This is before they've gone across the Jordan to occupy mm-hmm. the land. He's already talking about them being utterly destroyed. Not annihilated, but essentially they're going to lose their nation. They're going to lose their temple. They're going to lose a lot of their culture. They're going to lose a lot of their people. And then verse 27, Vivian, read verse 27. 427. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where it drives you. And 28. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Okay, he predicts idolatry even. Very specific. Scattering. So it's predicted very early, a scattering. And it's happened at least two times. It's happened at least two times. The Babylonian captivity in 70 AD. So there's been two dispersions at least. And I've kind of highlighted just what God's going to do, remaining in the land, having children, remain long in the land, act corruptly, will surely perish, will utterly destroy you, will scatter you, you'll be left few in number among the nations. All that was fulfilled. All that's happened. So the scattering has taken place, and we looked at several of the scattering, or I just mentioned the two scatterings, and during each of those scatterings and periods of time, like Babylonian captivity, and also, and particularly 70 AD, there have been several attempts to destroy the the Jewish people, attempts to annihilate them in some cases. Let me give you some examples of attempts to destroy them even before they were a nation in Egypt. Now, this would look back from Deuteronomy, but even then, the Egyptians, remember they tried to kill all the male babies? They were having too many, and they were essentially trying to work them to death. And when they left Egypt, the armies were pursuing them, and surely had they had their way, they would have destroyed the nation of Israel. So as slaves in Egypt, there was attempts to break the line of Messiah and the Jewish people. And then we've talked about captivity in Babylon, 
where the nation was utterly destroyed. Medo-Persia, we have an example in the Old Testament where the Medo-Persians attempted to destroy the Jewish people, and that's the story of Esther, where God used a woman to intervene. God placed her for a time such as that, and she was an instrument that the Lord used to preserve the the nation of Israel. But there's an attempt. These are just examples in spite of all of this. 70 AD, Rome utterly destroyed Israel again. And there have been several examples since 70 AD. You could include the Crusaders in the 11th and 12th century where there was anti-Semitism, there was anti-Muslim, but all it included Jewish people as well. There were many Jews that were massacred in that in that time frame that's where the whole idea that god was finished with the jewish people the rationale was they were the god killers they killed god they killed messiah they killed, killed jesus christ even later on even before the holocaust in the 1290s they were expelled from england under penalty of death readmitted later, centuries later, but anti-Semitism in England, in Bavaria and Austria, thousands of Jews were killed in 1298, hundreds of thousands. 1306, 100,000 expelled from France under threat of death. 1348, over a million killed in Europe, I think. I think that's over Europe. 300,000 are driven out of Spain during the Inquisition. Some of them came to America. And I've heard, I don't know how true it is, but where I grew up in northern New Mexico, a lot of Jewish people settled up there. And I have seen tombstones with stars of David and stories that people tell of people going into closets or rooms and worshiping in strange ways that sound very Jewish. And I've also heard that people, Hispanic people with a last name with a Z, are probably Jewish people. Cutters. Hmm? Cutters. D-E-R-E-Z. Yeah. Anthony's grandmother on his mother's side is from Guadalajara. Her maiden name's Betty Stein. Stein? Betty Stein. Stein. Yeah, B-E-R-I-N. Yeah. And they own a bunch of It's likely that. They were Jewish. Right. My mother's maiden name is Martinez with a Z, so I may be Jewish. <laughs> huh? um, just out of curiosity, is there any reason you left Assyria and the Greek Empire off? I ran out of space on okay, this line. I just, I'm just, for my own curiosity. <laughs> and there's lots. I, I'm just kind of summarizing yeah. some, some of the major ones. You're talking about what period of time? In 1648 to 1658, 400,000 Polish Polish Jews were killed during the war of Prussia, Poland. Is that what you're referring to? Period? No, no, I was just asking about the Assyrian and, oh, Assyrian. and the Greeks. Oh, earlier. Yeah, 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 before Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, these are just the more recent ones. And then the most, I guess, prominent and recent is the Holocaust in Germany. Just little bits and pieces of examples. But this has been their history in dispersion. They have not been left alone, and yet they survived the Quote by, I'm not sure of the background of Lord Baconsfield, but it's a good quote. And here's your answer. The pharaohs of Egypt, the kings of Assyria, the Roman emperors, the crusaders, the Gothic princes, and the holy inquisitors had devoted their entire energy to the accomplishment of a single plan. Expulsion, exile, captivity, confiscation refined tortures, massacres on the most vast scale. Everything has been tried. Currently, currently Iran and, and the UN, currently. John Walvred, it is paradoxical that the nation chosen for exaltation and selected to be a special means of divine revelation should also be destined for suffering, which would exceed that of any other nation of the world accurate statement as well. So, there have been historically many attempts to destroy not only the nation, but the people. They've all failed. Even scripture predicts in Isaiah when Israel, and this is before they were scattered, 
by the Babylonians, and most certainly before the 70 AD scattering, but this was fulfilled in both instances, after the Babylonian and also after the 70 AD. And why don't we look that one up? Mark, do you want to start? You want to read that? And why don't you look up Jeremiah thirty eleven and Ezekiel eleven six. Isaiah five verses five and six. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste, I will not, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, rain no rain. Okay. And basically what he's reminding them, he's reminding of that, them of that Palestinian covenant in terms of the curses. This is what he's going to do. And what he says here corresponds with what he said in Deuteronomy. He's going to fulfill what he entered into covenant to do. He actually legally binds himself to do it. So centuries after Deuteronomy, we have Isaiah, but Isaiah is also prior to the Babylonian captivity and the 70 AD, and that actually happened. The, the land languished and had to be renewed. And there, even in 1948, there's a lot of stories concerning the swamp land in the Valley of Megiddo. The I'm trying to think of the other name there. Uh, what's the other name of that? Megiddo Valley. Well, Megiddo. Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, they had to drain that swamp land. It was uninhabitable. Lots of the malaria and diseases. And to the south and west, where Tel Aviv is, that was, that was wasteland. It was desert. And people didn't live there. I mean, it was too, too arid. Isaiah predicts it. So the scattering and all of the after effects as well. But in the midst of that, God promises to preserve. So Jeremiah 31, 11, you got that one, Renata? I am with you, and I will save you, declares the Lord. Now, when was Jeremiah written? Some of it was written before they went into Babylonian captivity, and some of it was written, I'm not exactly sure through the context, but right there when they're about to be destroyed. Sorry about that. Go ahead and pick up. Okay. So, I am with you, and I will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Okay, so their justice is going to be affected. They will experience discipline, but it's not going to be annihilation. And a similar passage, same time frame, Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel writes during the exile, some of it before, but during the exile, 1116, Jim. Therefore say... Thus says the Lord, though I had moved them far away among nations, and though I had scattered them the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while, for in the countries where they... Okay, so he remains available to them. He's a sanctuary. In other words, he's a protector. He's going to preserve them. Otherwise, he would violate his covenants and promises. And we also have promises of regathering. So two major things before that tribulation period, scattering and regathering. Let's take a look at the regathering. You could consider this the third regathering in our time frame. Some consider the the removal from the land even in the time of Jacob as the first Scattering, and then they return to the land after the Exodus. So that would be considered a regathering at that point. They weren't a nation yet, but they were the people that God would eventually bring as a nation. And then you could consider under Ezra and Nehemiah in, let's see, I'm remembering the date, 536, about uh, that date, I think, ties to the first regathering in Israel in preparation for Messiah. And I think there's some prophecies that were not fulfilled in either one of those. Obviously, the ones, most of the prophecies are after that first one that I mentioned. So some scholars consider this a third regathering, which would be whenever that regathering takes place. And I think we have, 
at least our generation has witnessed something of that. That's why I use that photograph there of, of something of a regathering in terms of immigration and those that came, obviously, on that airplane. A third regathering. So let's talk a little bit about that, and particularly the, the scriptures that deal with that. I mentioned the three dispositions or scatterings or exiles even, some of them. And the heart of what is happening here is God is working every time he regathers them. It was a divine work with Ezra and Nehemiah, and it'll be a divine work in the future. Now, I think we're seeing some of that now, so it's something in our time frame. Barb, you want to look up the Deuteronomy 30 and Vivian the... Let me give you, before you do that one, I want you, let's, let's look up some other ones as well. Look up Isaiah 11, 11, verse 11 and 12. Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. And Mark, do the, well, let's all turn to Ezekiel. So let's read those first two. Deuteronomy 30, Mark 3 through 5. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortune. He will gather you again from all the peoples. Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of hell, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. That has never been fulfilled. And this was predicted before they were... This is that same passage we looked at earlier. This is the Deuteronomy passage before they entered the land, before they were actually even a nation. But the notice, what I, what I want you to notice at this point is, I didn't count the number, but how many times, you might just make a mental note there, how many times does it say the Lord God is going to do this? It's not going to be as a result of your own planning and strategery, is that a word? And your own efforts, the word here. You're a lawyer, you, you know, you know words. <laughs> but over and over, uh, then the Lord your God will restore you, etc., the Lord your God has scattered you. It's a divine work. And if you don't get it there, Isaiah 11, Vivian, verse 11 and 12. Isaiah, well, I switched it on you. Isaiah 11. 11 and 12. Okay, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with its hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hama and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners. The second time, the first one was the Babylonian. This is a second regathering, very specific. And he names these nations, and, and the Jews have come from some of those nations or the, the lands of those nations in more recent times. I don't think Isaiah 11 was fulfilled until just prior to 1948 and after. And just for your notes, there's several of these. Jot these down just for your own. You can look these up later. But they also speak of this regathering and a divine work. Isaiah 52, verse 12 is another one. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard in this regathering. That verse Jeremiah 31, 8. Write that one down. Behold, I am bringing you from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. And it goes on and on. And even Ezekiel eleven seventeen, bringing them. Mark. When, uh, when we talked earlier in course about prophecies, one of the things that you brought up was that sometimes there are partial Yes. Fulfillments of prophecies. Yes. Like, uh, uh, times a partial fulfillment of, uh, Isaiah or Elijah. Elijah. So could, couldn't you even say though that? Sure. That has probably happened about Yes, yes. Media. Yeah, and what I should have been more clear on is the ultimate fulfillment is still future. Yeah. From first century. And we may be seeing some of the fulfillment of that. Yes. Good clarification. A very important passage is Ezekiel 37. We won't read the whole passage, but let me summarize some of it, and let's look at a few of the details in there. Let's read some of the verses, verses 1 and 2. Jim. 
This is a vision that Ezekiel sees. 37.1 The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them around about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. So what he is seeing is a scene, something like this artist's conception of valley full of dry bones, deadness. And what can those bones do on their own other than rot further than what they're decaying in the photograph? Nothing. That's the imagery. In other words, Israel is as dead as a valley full of dry bones. That's what Ezekiel is saying. Israel can do nothing to change that condition. So it's a hopeless condition. That's what that pictures. And he's going to go on and describe more of that. Skip to verse 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, flesh upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know. This is a well-known... Vision, probably one of the best known in the book of Ezekiel. God is going to give flesh to dead bones. This is total. This is a picture of total depravity on a national scale. Total deadness. Physical, spiritual, emotional, however way you can think of it. Dead, dead. And what God is going to do is give life to these bones. It's a picture, Well, when we get to the interpretation, it's a picture of a... A regenerating work or a regathering. Regathering is the broad sense. It has aspects to it. And let's see, verse 7. 7 through 10, he is going to see a fulfillment of that. He's going to see these bones come alive. But let's skip down to verse 11 through 13. Eric, do you want to read? Start with verse 11 and we'll break that one down. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones, the whole house of Israel. There's your interpretation. The bones, they're symbolic. They're a picture. They're a vision. And here's the explanation. Keep reading. They're the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your grave, my people, and I will bring you into the land. I believe, and by the way, I don't think there are a lot of prophetic passages that are being fulfilled today. This is an exception. I, I think this one is one of the very few that started back probably, well, it started probably before the Holocaust. Things began to move, to begin. God doing this phase of this regathering. And in the imagery, it's a physical, you know, it's a coming out of graves. It's a putting together of flesh and even physical life. There's another phase that has not happened yet. And I think verse 14 is true from our day. I see 11 through 13 as being fulfilled before the, the eyes of this generation. And I'm going to give you more detail on that. But read verse 14, because I think that's long, that's in the future. Barb, you get that one? And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your... Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Did you finish it? I have spoken. We'll do it. Okay. I will do it. The Lord. The Lord will do it. I think there's a distinction. 11 through 14, I think, looks at a material, a physical, a natural, if you will, regathering, where they will, in fact, become a nation again. They will be prosperous again to some extent. They will develop technology. They will come together as a, as a culture. They will be an intellectual entity as well. And the distinction between verse 13 and 14 is what? There's also another component to the regathering. A spiritual one. A spiritual one. That has not happened yet. In fact, 
most Jewish people today are even atheists. They're unbelievers. The uh, Orthodox are a small minority in Israel. And even the Orthodox that are a small minority, they're conservative in that they do devote themselves to the Word, but they don't really have a spiritual regenerating work in them. That awaits a future. Yes? Does their future spiritual always presume um, fully retrospective to so their eyes will be open to having denied Christ incarnate? That, that they'll, re- they'll accept and receive also fully the past, like all of them. Uh, when you say fully, probably as fully as we, I mean, and we don't fully <laughs> grasp everything, but yeah, I, I think so. Uh, what is it, Zechariah 9, 10, I think, where they will, I can't remember how it's phrased, but they will look upon his wounds. Pierced. Yeah, that, that they pierced. They will recognize, I think, it, oh, Jesus was the Messiah. We crucified him. We killed him. And I think there'll be an awakening. Now, we're going to talk about when that fulfillment takes place. It's going to be when the church is already gone. We're just building kind of the sequence here. I think that's a key passage that basically tells us in as clear a detail as you probably get anywhere else. There's several individual verses that speak of a regathering and a re constituting of the nation. The Ezekiel 37, together in one passage, I think is the clearest. And it makes that distinction as well between a material, physical, ethnic regathering and a spiritual regathering. And there's also a specific passage like Isaiah 49, 22, that speaks of uh, God using instruments. And I think that's key because that, I think, has been fulfilled as well. See, did you read, Vivian? You want to do the Isaiah forty nine twenty two? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to this and set up my standard, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their That, if it's not totally clear, at least implies that God's going to use the nation to at least be facilitators in this regathering. And another element that we want to look at in this regathering is, and I've kind of described prophetically this third regathering, that has never been fulfilled. And in a lot of the other passages, we have the importance of the, the importance of the land. So let's look at those passages, some of them. Just the accumulation of, and the number of passages that stress the land eliminates amillennialism. And I'm just going to give you a handful. I've, I've probably got, I don't know, 50 to 100 verses that you could look at. You go all the way back to Genesis 12. One of the stipulations is the land. The land that God will show Abraham. It's not specified as Canaan yet. It's promised. And we've looked at chapter 15. We've looked at chapter 17. God enters into covenant and it pertains to the land. The land. We've also looked at Deuteronomy 28. They're going to be removed from the what? The land. The removal. The discipline is from the land. The expulsion is from the land. And it speaks of their land. And we've just looked at the Ezekiel 37, 14. Regather them and remember we saw that little verse. I will place you on your own land. We just looked at that verse. Just read it. So it's to the land. And there's several other passages as well. Let's look at some of them. Ezekiel 36. Is it you, Mark? Why don't you look that one up? Hanada, Ezekiel 20. Jim, Ezekiel 28. A lot of these are in Ezekiel, but there's other others as well. 25 and 26. So 36, 25. I gave you 36, 24. I'm sorry. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Your own land. Your own land. Similarly, if you want another verse, Amos 9, 14 and 15 for your notes, and there's others as well. 15. And Ezekiel 20, do you got that one? Hanada, verses 41 and 42. I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you... When I bring you out from the nations and gather, and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered. Okay, there, there you go. They're, they're scattering there. 
from the nations. Keep reading. Where you have been scattered. And I will show myself holy among, among you in the sight of the nation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel. The land I have sworn with up with him to give to your fathers. Okay. Did you see emphasis on the land? The land of Israel, first of all. And if you didn't get it, if it didn't snap in your brain, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. So it's the same land as the Abrahamic covenant. Same land as the Palestinian covenant. And there's others. 38.8, if you want another one for just emphasizing the land. And, and Jim, you're going to do 28, 25, and 26. 28, 25, and 26. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from peoples among whom they are scattered, and shall manifest my holiness in them in the sight of nations, then they will live in their land. Their land. See that? Which I gave to my servant Jacob. Did he give a spiritual land? Not Jacob. And they will live in it securely. They've always had enemies. They've always had people threatening them. But they're going to live securely. Keep reading. They will build houses on the West Bank. At least. <laughs> Very good. I don't see that. that well, that's in there. That's in there. That's part of the land, the West Bank. It's not a spiritual West Bank. Go ahead. Keep reading. Plant vineyards and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them. There's, there's the enemies. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Okay, that hints at regeneration in the land. It's not a spiritual land. And there's other verses as well. If you want another one, Jeremiah 23, 7 through 8. You have this recurring little phrase, their land, their own land, the land of Jacob, the land of their fathers. In fact, I think I've got a number here. Mark Bailey, I'm not sure where, says there's 1,400 passages on the land and God giving them the land. And I would add, none of them that I'm aware of is speaking of this nebulous spiritual land. It's literal land. And it's forever, Isaiah 60, 21. Sheila, 60, 21. Also your people shall be, shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my plan and the work of my hands that I may be. And the main thing in there is the land forever. Land forever. So it's an eternal promise, an eternal gift, eternal possession. It's not until the church replaces you. So the land is important. And we don't quite have time to... What I'd like to do is also lay out a little bit of the recent history. And let me just introduce it to you. And then next week we'll pick up there to see how... I think it's kind of exciting to see how God may be working in this generation. Not that we want to set dates or say that, you know, he's coming in within the next 10 or whatever. But there's a lot of things that are of great encouragement in terms of eschatology and the nation of Israel. In fact, when you look at the, and I do this so that when you see things in the news, think of them in terms of eschatology. What is God doing here? And you'll see that everything that we are doing as, as humans is going against more than likely what God is going to ultimately do. Because he's going to ultimately, like that last verse mentioned, uh, what did it say about his glory? The work of my hands yeah. that I may be glorified. That he may be glorified. He's going to be glorified. And it's good. It's neat to kind of look at the news and see what God is doing. And it's fun to even go to Israel. So I'll give you a kind of a rundown of their... Recent history, this slide is just kind of a summary of since 70 A.D., since the dispersion. There's always been small community from about 1445 on. There have been small communities of Jewish people in the land. Never organized, never a national entity until the last entry on the slide. Very important date, 1871, a Zionist movement with... A vision in the sense of something that was planned and something that is desired was this Zionist movement, a, a desire to, to come back to the land. 
and even a desire to be a nation. And we'll, I'll give you some more detail on that. And I think a big impetus for Israel coming back into the land as a national entity was the Holocaust. I think God used that to break down not only anti-Semitism, but to begin to create a sympathetic atmosphere where the world, almost in pity, thought that it was a good thing to allow Jewish people their land. So I think God used that, even though as horrendous as it was and something that we would not want, but I think he used it to create a climate worldwide. And then in 1948, they declared their independence. So that's a significant day. And I'll expand some of that. Some, Particularly the Zionist movement, I'd like for you to have a little bit of the background. At every stage of what is going on here, unnoticed by the world and unseen is the hand of God and miraculous things. Several things are just unexplainable historically and from a humanistic perspective. What happened, not only leading up to the Holocaust, but events that took place since. And that kind of awaits a future covenant that is very specific that we'll look at next time. And it also anticipates a future awakening, that spiritual regathering in the land of Israel a spiritual turning. And that's the purpose of that seven-year period is to bring Israel into a saving relationship uh, with their with their God, with Yahweh, with our God. Okay? Mark, why don't you close for us? Why don't you remember Anthony again? He's trying to sleep. Pray for him that he'll get his rest so he can be prepared to teach tomorrow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provision of Ray and he has in his ability so that he can teach us by means of your spirit, so that we can understand, which is so critical to our own placing ourselves within. We thank you for those who have the calling to go out, such as Anthony Grego, to uh, to foreign lands, uh, also teach your truth, your revelation to those there who have a need and a desire and a devotion to you. Thank you for all these kinds of people that, that are part of your plan for your glory, as you have provided for that glory since eternity past. Thank you for all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue today in our look at Israel in eschatology. And I mentioned, mentioned last time and can't stress enough that eschatology is Jewish. And what I want to demonstrate when we look at all of the other areas... On our syllabus, we're going to look at the church, we're going to focus in on the tribulation period, we're going to focus in on the millennial kingdom and things like that, second coming. Particularly those areas where there are many, many scriptures that relate in some of the main areas, and you'll, I hope you notice that as we treat them, they are all within the Jewish framework, within the Jewish eschatology. We think everything's about the church because that's what we're familiar with and we tend to be self-centered, so everything's about us, right? But eschatology is Jewish, and God has not completed his plan with Israel. And historically, you know that he's still working a plan that involves Israel. The church tends to minimize that and even deny that and tries to take all of the promises that belong to Israel and unconsciously they will take even the covenants and apply them to the church. But... If you understand covenants, and if you understand what God is doing with Israel, then that is a mistake. And that is an explanation for a lot of the views that are contrary to the views that uh, we are taking concerning eschatology. So, let's continue looking at Israel. And the consummation of all things involves Israel. Last time we looked at Israel before the tribulation. Didn't quite complete that. And I'd like to continue looking at that area. We saw that we are dealing with a third regathering, and we are witnessing some aspects of that. And in our generation, we have seen some of that. And I'm going to give you a lot of detail. Some of this is very, very useful, I think, in sharing from an apologetic perspective, people in our culture, even within the church, to demonstrate that what God has said, we are seeing right before our eyes. 
Now, in general, I see very few prophecies being fulfilled in this age, particularly all of those passages that pertain to the tribulation, like what I would consider the Olivet Discourse, the early part of it. I think all of that is within that seven-year period. But there are some prophecies, I think, dealing with the third gathering of the nation of Israel in the land, which began even before 1948, that I think, in fact, do fulfill some prophecies and seem to set a stage for the rest of what God has predicted and what God has revealed in his word. So we talked about the third gathering. We talked about the importance of the land And the land is important because of the multitude of passages. Mark Bailey says there are 1,400 passages that pertain to Israel in the land. And you can't find a single one that you legitimately can spiritualize. And in order to hold uh, the viewpoints other than a literal viewpoint, you have to spiritualize all 1,400 of them and many others as well but particularly the land. So the land is very important. And we also stress, besides just the passages themselves, God has entered into at least two covenants, legally binding contracts that both pertain to the land. So the land is very, very important. And in terms of apologetics, some some of the things that have been happening recently, and I'd like to kind of go over that. I gave you, we concluded by looking at a little bit of a, foretaste of that, and I'll show you that same slide along with several others. But I think you can use this in, if you know these facts, in other words, these are things that have happened, some of which are even miraculous. Some of these they don't have an explanation for how this could have happened. And I think you can use it apologetically and point to the scriptures and show that this is what God predicted. This is what he said. In fact, some of those passages pertain to what he said even before Israel was a nation. So thousands of years in the past, God predicted these things. So let's take a look at that. Here's a summary of Jewish history from about 70 AD. In other words, since the first century. And this is basically secular history. This is what has happened within the land of Israel. First of all, Israel was scattered even before 70 A.D., but that was the date for the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple and really the killing of what's estimated to be between half a million and a million Jewish people in 70 A.D. And the scattering was essentially affected there, but there were still Jews in the land and around the land, hidden out, And there was a revolt in 135 A.D. that kind of finalized all that. And after that, basically, uh, there were virtually no Jews in the land. So we have a scattering. And then we have a Roman period that followed with what we would describe as a Byzantine period from about 135 to 638. And during that time, Jews were not in the land. They were scattered. And all of that, we've seen, was prophesied as well. In 638 to about 1090, that would be considered a Muslim period, where they controlled the land, took over by conquest. And not only did they control the land, but that was the period, that was the time frame where they built the Dome of the Rock that exists on Temple Mount today. And mosques and other Islamic structures and basically controlled the land. The Al-Aqsa Mosque on Temple Mount is also built in this time frame. So that's the Muslim period. Then there are the Crusaders tried to take the land back. That's about 1099 or about 1100 to 1291, somewhere in there. So you could consider that the Crusader period. In the name of Christ, predominantly Catholic Church, did a lot of evil things as well, almost as bad as the Muslims. But not only did they attack Muslims, but any Jews as well that were in the path, they were somewhat anti-Semitic. So a lot of Jews died in the Crusades as well. And there were some Jews that were in the land. Jerusalem was established as a Latin kingdom under the Roman Catholic Church. So they controlled the city during this period of time. And then after that, 
kind of at the end of that period, Saladin, Muslim, and the Mamluk, 1187-1517, that would be another period in there, where some of the Crusaders were defeated by Saladin, but there were continued conflicts between the Muslims and the Crusaders, so basically this is a re-establishing of Muslim control over the lands, and by, by 1260, the city was under the Mamluks. After that is the Ottoman period, 1517 to 1917. These are Turkish Muslims. They assumed power to control the land. They completed rebuilding the walls. And if you visit Jerusalem today, the upper portions of the walls in Jerusalem were built during the, or rebuilt during the Ottoman period. So the smaller stones towards the top of the walls present day are Ottoman, as well as other structures as well. So in 1517, they, they assumed power until they were conquered by the British in 1917. So that would be British rule from 1917 until essentially the founding of the nation of Israel. This was as a result of World War I, where they basically obtained the land as a result of World War I, the British. So, let's see, in 1917, there was also what's called the Balfour Declaration, where letters were written and documents were signed that favored Jews coming back to the land. There were Jews in the land from about the 1400s, but very small communities without any power, without any control. So it almost appears that God is beginning to move through circumstances like wars, World War I, and then later World War II, we're going to see more movement such that eventually not only the state is founded, the state of Israel, but other things related to it as well. So that's kind of a summary of occupation of the land under different rulerships. It's kind of fascinating that under the Romans they were scattered, and then under a Roman colony, the Brits, they kind of set it up to come back in. Right, exactly. (laughs) Came full circle. Which you could even say something of a revived Roman Empire in the end of the age that is in fact predicted. I showed you this kind of a summary of recent history from 70 AD, the dispersion. We did look at Luke 21. Mark, why don't you look that one up? I think Jesus, specifically in Luke's account, not necessarily in Matthew, this is kind of a little passage in the Olivet Discourse that only Luke records. And it's an interesting passage. You got it? Yes. Verses 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Okay. He's talking to the disciples. And they had already talked, Jesus had already talked about these buildings being destroyed in the earlier passages, and particularly in Matthew's account. And now he's going to pinpoint that, and I think this took place in the first century. Everything else in the Olivet Discourse is long range, at least the way I take it. Go ahead. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which we are, which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are babies in those days. There will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the, ar- until the times of the Gentiles. Okay, and we're going to come back to that little phrase, the times of the Gentiles, that Jesus identifies. But I think that passage pinpoints 70 A.D., and that was fulfilled. Now, the surrounding passages, and particularly Matthew's account, I think look at almost a repeat of something similar. There's some similarities that will take place far in the future, even future from our time. We'll come back to that, and we'll look at that when we look at the period of the tribulation, and we also talk about... I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch of the Olivet Discourse towards the end of the course. So we have a dispersion 
in 70 AD, and from about 1445, small communities existed in Israel, and that's about the time frame. There may have been maybe families, but very few Jews before this period of time in the land. And slowly, Jewish people returned, and by 1445, there were small communities in Israel. In 1871, there is a movement, I'm going to give you more detail to this, the beginning of a Zionist movement, and I want to expand that and look at that in a little bit more detail, where not only did Jews return to the land, but a vision and a desire to establish a state, that's the Zionist movement, and efforts were made in that direction. Now, things didn't happen immediately, but it took a series of circumstances, particularly, I think, World War II, that eventually ended in Israel becoming a state. But as early as 1871, we have movements in that direction, and we'll talk about that some more. In the 1940s, the Holocaust, I think, was in a drastic way God moving such that the Jewish people had to suffer. And I think you could even consider it something of an awakening judgment, if you will. But they had to suffer for the benefit of the world to have to develop a sympathy for the Jewish people. And after the Holocaust and the world saw the atrocities and the the great suffering of six million Jews, there was a climate now worldwide. Before that, the world was largely anti-Semitic. After the Holocaust, minds started to change and people's attitudes began to soften concerning Jewish people. So there was some sympathy for the Jewish people and a need or a recognition for a need for them to have their own land. And that eventuated eventually into their independence in 1948. So I think the Holocaust played a role in that. And then uh, from there, there's going to be some future events that will continue to develop where the next major event in Israel's history is going to be a covenant. We'll talk a lot about that later. Touch on it today, but I want to give you more detail on it. A covenant, not with God, but with a messianic figure. That's the Daniel 9 passage. So there's going to be that future covenant, and then there's also going to be a future awakening, which is very, very important. This will be after the covenant, during a seven-year period of time. So that's kind of recent history that even projects a little bit into the future. 